Psalm 58, the subheading which reads to the chief musician, do not destroy, or set to do not destroy, a miktam or golden song of David. Do you indeed speak righteousness, you silent ones? Do you judge uprightly, you sons of men? No, in heart you work wickedness. You weigh out the violence of your hands in the earth. The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray as soon as they are born, speaking lies. Their poison is like the poison of a serpent. They are like the deaf cobra that stops its ear, which will not heed the voice of charmers, charming ever so skillfully. Break their teeth in their mouth, O God. Break out the fangs of the young lions, O Lord. Let them flow away as waters which run continually. When he bends his bow, let his arrows be as if cut in pieces. Let them be like a snail which melts away as it goes, like a stillborn child of a woman, that they may not see the sun. Before your pots can feel the burning thorns, he shall take them away as with a whirlwind, as in his living and burning wrath. The righteous shall rejoice when he sees the vengeance, He shall wash his feet in the blood of the wicked, so that men will say, Surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely he is God who judges in the earth. Thus far we read the sacred word of God, this psalm, sung long ago in Jewry and sung with joy also in the the fullness of time by the church. The verses on which I would focus Though we consider the whole Psalm 58 are the last two, verses 10 and 11. The righteous shall rejoice when he sees the vengeance. He shall wash his feet in the blood of the wicked, so that men will say, Surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely he is God who judges in the earth. Beloved, we do not know the setting of this song in particular. Uh, The subheading doesn't tell us exactly what is the occasion for this psalm. It seems to be uh, definitely an occasion in which David is being slandered, but slandered, oddly enough, by the silence of people who are in a position to defend him. So the very first verse of this uh, Psalm 58 is, Do you indeed speak righteousness, you silent ones? And then the condemnation, no, your heart works wickedness. So there seemed to be an occasion when David is being tried, maybe in a formal setting, and maybe there's witnesses, maybe there's a court of leaders in Israel, and he's being condemned not only by the words of wicked men, but by those who in their silence are conniving with those who speak slander against David. So, for example, perhaps it's 1 Samuel 24 when David's fleeing from Saul. And he says in verse 9 of 1 Samuel 24, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Indeed, David seeks your harm? 
Look this day, your eyes have seen that the Lord delivered you today into my hand in the cave, and someone urged you to kill me, but my eyes spared you. And I said, I will not stretch out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. That might be the occasion, we're just not sure. And as uh, always, we're reminded, beloved, that our knowing the exact occasion at these times when we are not told it is not important. If the Holy Spirit had seen fit for us to know exactly when he would have told us, and he hasn't, and so we deal with the text as it stands. And we're reminded by this, not knowing this occasion, that this is a psalm word of God. God is speaking to all occasions, and when there are occasions of people slandering the righteous, or in other ways, showing they are against the righteous even by their silence, whether it's formally in a court, or whether it's among friends you thought were friends at work or whatever, there are problems we run into for being God's righteous people, and the unrighteous will show by their silence or their, uh, their vocality that they are against us and against God. So this is one of those psalms where we have to understand the whole thread of the scripture that speaks of us and the world as at enmity with one another. Even as God said in the very first promise, I will put enmity against the snake and his seed and the church and her seed. I'll make a difference in a spiritual separation, a wall I will build so that there's this antagonism. And I would say, beloved, before we understand uh, the exposition or uh, before we expound this word in detail, we need ourselves to come quickly to this text because otherwise we're far afield and we can say, well, this was long ago and far away and of a man who had problems and maybe he was uppity and maybe he... He had it coming to him, this judgment of, of, of some people against him. Oh, no. We need to identify with this psalmist here. For after all, beloved, he's a psalmist, a righteous psalmist on the side of Jesus. And when men are against this righteous psalmist, and they have things to say against him, or silence, and by their, their silence they condemn him, they are saying this against Christ, and so, with all concern for the glories of Christ and, and for the exaltation of God at the end of time, the vengeance even upon the wicked, we do pray that God would bless us as we hear what I would call in this psalm a celebration of the vengeance. That's where it ends. The psalmist speaks of his problem. He calls down uh, curses really upon the wicked, and then he celebrates the vengeance of God that he will engage in when God releases him from the verdict and pronounces that he is just all along. The righteous shall rejoice when he sees the vengeance. That's the day we look forward to, the celebration of vengeance, the vengeance of God. When God is God and we are vindicated and rewarded the reward of grace. So let's consider, first of all, a very important point. And as we come to the table, we consider this very important point. 
There needs to be, if there be a celebration proper of the vengeance of God, there needs to be a lamentation of the sins of the Son of Man. We need to deal with that, to be sorry for that. Then there needs to be this understanding that there's this, this wonderful work of grace identifying us with the Son of God so that the righteous man sees that God has made a difference between him and the unrighteous. And then finally, you can talk about that celebration. But only then, only after there's this understanding of our sin and understanding of our Savior, can there be this celebration. The psalmist here laments the wickedness of the wicked, the unrighteousness of the unrighteous. And in this, basically, he gives an outstanding description of the total depravity of fallen sinners. You find that throughout the scripture. A description here, a description there, of how sinful human beings have become since the fall in Adam. And so here, the psalmist here is speaking about his own case, when apparently by their silence, uh, those in a position to vindicate him, they, they sealed their lips. They didn't say, but David's not, he's not against you, King Saul. No, he's, he's for you. He's a good man. No, they didn't. They feared for their lives. Saul wanted David dead, and Saul wanted, therefore, a verdict that would please his own predilection and tendency toward condemning David. Well, so the psalmist is, is lamenting that and, and saying the truth that in their heart they're working wickedness and and all of this, and then he goes into an elaborate, really, in, in three verses, an elaborate description of what these people are. They're wicked people who weigh out the violence of their hands in the earth, in all of the earth, that's verse 2. And then, verse 3, the wicked, all of them, not just J David's plaguers, are, the wicked are estranged from the womb, they're alienated. And that's a word that describes them being alienated from God from the womb and from righteousness. They're not at home with God anymore. They're fallen. They go astray as soon as they're born speaking lies, and especially the tongue is that which catches David's ear as something that needs to be said here about the wicked. They show by their words how wicked they are. Their poison is like the poison of a serpent. They're like the deaf cobra. That's a poisonous snake, children. It stops its ears and will not hear the voice of charmers, charming ever so skillfully, alluding here to practice in the Middle East of some people claiming to be able to hypnotize snakes so that they don't act like snakes anymore. But here, David says of sinners, you can't do it. Nothing can change a sinner from his being a sinner and even being a snake, like the devil. Nothing can do that. Other places, the Bible uh, laments the fact that there's simply no changing a sinner except God changes the heart of the sinner. Now here, beloved, is a picture of total depravity, of total sinfulness, and only if we understand this can we come to the table and say we need Jesus. 
Or can we come to church and not be hypocrites? We have to understand this is the depravity of human beings everywhere that is described here. Now, some like to say, no, no, no. This was just a bad situation for David. And they say David just was among, just among a bunch of scoundrels. So it's David's people or the people in Israel at that time. They were really bad, but not everybody's so bad. In fact, there's even a book called An Ember Still Glowing, written by an apostate reformed person that speaks of a kind of righteousness among the wicked so that people are not totally depraved anymore. There's some good in them, or they never were totally depraved. There's still some good in them. Well, beloved, so they'll say here, this is just um, at one point they were so bad. They'll also say Genesis Uh, Chapter 6 through 8, when God looked down upon the earth and saw that the wickedness of great and that their thoughts were only evil continually and so on. Oh, that's only for the time just before the flood. People aren't so bad today. We've come a long way. We've grown. We've developed. We've, We've civilized ourselves and other people so that they're not totally depraved anymore if they ever were. And the fanning of the human nature and the image of God in all of us is, has proceeded by men fanning the flame and encouraging enlightenment even without the word of God and so that there's some good. And we can work with these people and we can, we can, we can deal with them and get things, good things done in the earth. Beloved, so this is how people are interpreting the Bible if those even would go to the Bible. They're saying, well, Genesis 6, just before the flood, that was a certain time and a certain era that was really bad, and it needed a flood to rectify things. Or maybe at the time of Jesus, Jesus was understood and and, 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 uh, he was hated and so on, simply because the people couldn't get Jesus, and they didn't have the Spirit poured out and so on. And sin isn't that bad that people would crucify Jesus, and and on and on they go. They weren't totally depraved. They were doing what they thought was right in all of this, and it's true in a way. they, They thought it was right to crucify Jesus. But crucifying Jesus is sin, and people don't get that. And so the Bible teaches in no uncertain terms throughout that people are totally depraved. There's no righteousness. There's none righteous, no, not one. And here, uh, the Apostle Paul in Romans 3 takes up the theme of this verse here and a thousand other verses of the depravity of man. In Romans The first chapters, he's painting everyone black. And that means, beloved, that black lives don't matter. That is, sinners' lives don't matter. That is, we can't contribute anything to the salvation of God. Black lives, white lives, green lives, whatever color you are, doesn't matter with God. It's not going to get you to heaven You are unrighteous still. There's none righteous. No, not one. Believe that? Do we believe that? That means it's ubiquitous, that is, everywhere present, our sin and sinfulness. Every society, whether it's a so-called 
Christian West and the, the first world countries or the third world countries, every person is just like this. And in different manifestations, to be sure, to be sure, there's different degrees of sin and sinfulness, different ways that sin shows its wickedness. It all comes down to this. Whether it's disguised or whether it's just completely given over to sin, a person is, we're sinful, full of sin. And this all, because we've learned bad from bad examples? No. But because we're born that way. Notice how the psalmist brings out the problem and he makes it even worse, as it were. The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray as soon as they're born, speaking lies. Now, here is another outstanding proof text and truth, uh, the fact that in Adam all die. Romans chapter 5, 1 Corinthians 15. Genesis chapter 3, when Adam fell, we sinned all. In Adam, we have inherited a sinful nature. That's why from the womb, The wicked are not at home with God. They're aliens from God, from the womb. And that's why David himself, with all humility, would say in Psalm 51, verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts. In the hindered part you will make me to know wisdom. But in the hidden parts... In the center of his soul, there's this problem. As Jeremiah laments, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Do you know that, beloved? You come here and your clothes are on. But don't try to hide from God what's inside. The dirt, the guilt, the shame. And so we're born that way. Now, people don't like to know about total depravity, and certainly they don't want to know and hear the truth about where we get this. They'll say, well, that's not fair. How can the wicked be considered wicked if, really, they were born that way? And we find people excusing their own sin and their own anger, their own temper, their own tendency to violence because they were born that way. I was born a male in a female body or a female in a male body. I was born to be a pedophile. I was born to do this. It was just my tendency. Or we had this in Lacombe, Alberta, my first charge. Somebody burned down the post office. Turned out to be two young men out on a rant at night. Well, they were excused because they had a broken home. Well... Yes, just about all of the sin in the world could be excused by people's homes being broken, but before God, this is sin. And we need to take responsibility for it, to repent of it, or we die. Well, beloved, one other thing about this sin, too. The first is that the sin of the wicked is brought out here for really what it is, slandering the Lord's anointed. The sin of the wicked and all the violence and all of it comes down to this. 
It's not against man, first of all. It's against God. When we sin against babies in the womb, when we sin against that person, that neighbor who has three boats and we'd like to and we'd like to covet, um, covet one of his boats and all that. When we sin against people in the church, it's against God, first of all, who put that sinner in your way to love. And here we go, hating, uh, being greedy about what they have, coveting, slandering, even killing with our words and, and worse. It's against God when they sin against God's righteous people especially. Jesus said this in John 15. They hate me, and then they'll hate you. They're going to hate you because they hate me. Because I am represented in you, that's why they have a problem with you. And every time we let our light shine and we don't scurry away and we're afraid to witness and we're actually bold and humble at the same time, isn't that as rare as hen's teeth? Bold and humble at the same time. When we do that, we realize that people, when they respond to that witness, they are hating Christ in us. And need to point out, if we're bold and not humble and you're humble and not bold, you're going to think when people make fun of you or whatever they do, ignore you, that it's all about you and them. It's only when we realize and have the virtues of Christ combined, humility and grace and righteousness together, it's only when we have that that we realize that Jesus Christ is truly represented in us. How are you doing in that, beloved? Sin is totally being sinful and against God because we're born this way and we hate the representation of God in the righteous people, Jesus Christ himself, being that righteous son of man and son of God. But then I want to move on to the second point here and say that the psalmist here is not proud when he says this. He comes around to the celebration that he will enjoy as a righteous person with God's people. And the only way that a person can do this and be inspired by the Spirit for this is if he knows that he's a part of the problem or she is a part of the problem. When you read your Bibles, beloved, and you read about sin and depravity and these people, these terrible people before the flood and these terrible Israelites from head to toe, they're sinful. And you read about the people who crucified Jesus Christ. You read about Peter who denied the Lord and Paul who crucified uh, the Lord afresh by his persecuting the church. And you read about that, beloved, better be humble. And better understand that this is an indictment of you and of me. It's God saying, this is who you are. And if there is to be a celebration of the vengeance of God and an anticipation of the reward of grace, act like you know that, that when we're saying here and pontificating and preaching about the total depravity of, person, uh, of persons as a first point of Calvinism, Remember that it's also an understanding that we need to have that's a first point of godliness and reverence and humility and grace and power in your lives not to be a channel and instrument of your own righteousness or your own cause, but of God's. 
and of the cross. The psalmist in other places lamented his particular sins. And in here as well, this is behind it. But the focus is on the amazing celebration that awaits those who trust in God, who are righteous, and who love God. Now, this is the second point I want to lead to here. Absolutely vital. If we're going to come to the table, leave this place, and say, yeah, I'm a Christian. I am a Christian. I am so glad I heard Jesus speak this morning. You've got to understand this. First, your sin. Next, your Savior. The psalmist, there's something that leads him to make these bold statements and condemnations of those who condemn him. Do you indeed speak righteousness, you silent ones, you people who are just men-pleasers in the court? Do you judge uprightly, you sons of men, mere sons of men? No, in your heart you work wickedness. And you who are to judge, you weigh out as in a scale the violence of your hands in the earth. From your heart comes your judgments and your meeting out violent, violent pronouncements against the righteous in all the earth. There's something that makes David bold to say this and still be a man of God himself, and that's this. There's been a difference made. And in your life and in my life, if we be sons of God and children of God, we have to understand the difference. The difference. It's the difference, beloved, of grace. Before the foundation of the world, there's this difference of grace. Second Timothy chapter 1 reminds us that that's what God was doing before the foundation of the world, showing grace to us. He says that God has saved us, Second Timothy 1 he saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. Now think of that, beloved. Think of that practical application of the truth of predestination and grace, the free favor of God. That, you see, is what makes the difference between us and the unrighteous reprobate who go to hell for their unrighteousness. God, before time began, there was even grace given to us who weren't even there. But it was given to us in Christ Jesus. Think of that. In Ephesians 1, blessed be God who's chosen you before the foundation of the world. And there was a Lamb of God, Revelation 13, 8, that was slain from the foundation of the world, the plan of God. The wicked, you see, 
there in the womb. And they're separated from the womb to do evil. That's what they're appointed to do, and that's what they do. There's enmity between them and the righteous. And, beloved, this is true of us, that as the wicked are separated from, in the decree of God, to be wicked, even though God is not the author of their sin, for us, we are separated by the grace of God to be God's. And so even from early on in conception, we can say, well, as Jesus does in Psalm 22, you are he who took me out of the womb. You may be trust while I was on my mother's breast. I was cast upon you from birth, from my mother's womb. You've been my God. Now apply that to Psalm 58. The wicked are wicked from their wombs, from their conception. And then they go astray and they show who they are when they're born and then when they grow. The righteous, they're separated in the counsel of God to be gods. And then, and I believe this is the pattern that we're given in Scripture, then even in conception and in the womb, God says you're mine by a work of grace. This is one of the main reasons we celebrate infant baptism, because God's people are God's from eternity and from the womb. Most often, not always. Some people are born outside of covenant lines. They're born again later in life. But most of the time, Abraham and his seed are the ones in the generations who are called to be God's people. That's how God does it. That's how God saves his own in generations. I will visit iniquity upon the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. I will show mercy to thousands, and we could read thousands of generations of those who love me. I separate them from the womb. I have a plan, and the plan is to show to the devil, as soon as there's a conception of the seed of the woman, mine for whom Jesus would die, I will be theirs I will grace them. God does that with the wicked and does not grace them. Surely with the righteous. He separates them from the womb and he, he causes them to be raised in the fear of God by godly mothers and fathers. And a godly God is behind it all. Now, beloved, this is behind why this psalmist here is speaking so forcefully and powerfully. There's the wicked over here, and they're against him. They are against him. They're just completely annihilating him with words and with silence. They're out to get him. But the righteous, they're over here. And David knows this because God is over here. God is on his side. We would say Jesus has come and he's died for us. And the Holy Spirit is poured out. And so he says, thus saith the Lord. The wicked are like that. Thanks be to God. He's made a difference in me. Do we say that? Now, beloved, then the celebration... 
We'll go on. A celebration. Even a vengeance. Now, that may seem strange. And this is my final point, but some practical points right here. You ever have people say to you, judge not. Judge not. Almost had that this past week. We were selling some things. And a guy came to our house. Turns out he was Roman Catholic. And I said, well, you know, we Protestants still have a problem with you Roman Catholics. (laughs) I'm a nice neighbor. And he said, oh, you know, that Reformation thing wasn't much, and, and we still have most in common, more in common than we do have differences. I thought, man, this guy doesn't know anything. And sure enough, he didn't know anything, except that he was right and I was wrong. And that was wrong for judging him to be wrong. <laughs> so Mary... We went after Mary and her sinlessness. Because they say she's sinless. She's sinless. And they try to be holy about it and, and say, this is why we say she's sinless and so on. And I say it's not in the Bible. The worst thing you can do, the nastiest thing you can do to a Roman Catholic or anybody is come with a Bible. But that's a good thing. Because that's what the Word of God says. Anyway, my point is, Judge not, that that comes at us so often, doesn't it? And especially when we would call God down upon the enemies of God and to curse them even. As the Apostle Paul says, anybody who brings a different gospel, cursed be that person. There's a New Testament imprecation. Or calling down of curses upon the enemies of God. Here's an Old Testament imprecation, and many people hate this stuff. This is an imprecatory psalm, where the psalmist here, who's laid it out, the wicked are this bad, he doesn't say, oh, pretty please save them. He says, break their teeth in their mouth, oh God. That's what he says here. A lot of people stumble at this point in the Bible after they stumble over total depravity and then original sin and guilt. Now they, they don't like the way that righteous people in the Old Testament dealt with that stuff. Break their teeth in their mouth. Break out the fangs of the young lions, O Lord. Let them flow away as waters which run continually, that is, as the waters from a tide would seep back into the ground, let these people be no more as a slug also and melts away in its own slime. Or a stillborn child, let that child be killed. Or that son of unrighteousness be killed. Now, beloved, this is not a calling, of course, or abortion but it's a calling for execution, God's execution of the wicked. Are we that bold ourselves to pray this? 
Now you say, well, Jesus says pray for your enemies, right? Bless those who despitefully use you and so on. We've got to do that, of course. But this psalm is not about a personal vendetta that the king is seeking here. Rather, he's seeking the glory of God. That's why in Psalm 139, he says, Do not I hate them, O Lord, that hate you. That's not personal vengeance that he's seeking. Rather, he's seeking the glory of God. And anyone who would be a wicked person still, and as, as the, the choristers say in heaven, let them be wicked still. God's will be done. God's judgments be done upon them. He's seeing something is this righteous person of righteousness in God also in this dark side of God being glorified in taking retribution upon wicked people. And that's what we must do. In fact, this is creedal, if I can say that. This psalm and the the Heidelberg Catechism that calls us to pray for the kingdom to come. You know the dark side of that, the other side of that prayer? It's that the workers of iniquity in the kingdom of Antichrist would be destroyed. This is what the psalmist is praying here. And all godly people and godly denominations and federations and traditions have always kept both sides of the story uh, right to the front and needing to remind the people of God of the bad news and of the good news, of the love of God and of the holiness of God. Here it is. You see, the psalmist has on his mind because he's been separated by God in his grace forever and from the womb to be God's. And now here in his calling, he has the glory of God in mind. He is so rejoicing and anticipating rejoicing in vengeance when he shall wash his feet in the blood of the wicked So that men will say, surely there's a reward for the righteous, but then this especially is on his mind. Surely he is God who judges in the earth. He's looking forward to the day when the wicked say, this person was right and we were wrong, and this God whom he confessed is right and he's the judge of all the earth. He's looking forward to the day when God will come in Jesus. And every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And this, when all the tribes of the earth are moaning and groaning because they have crucified this person and rejected him and rejected his servants as they rejected righteous Noah who preached against the ungodliness day in and day out. And only he and his family were saved is by water. By grace, for Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. The celebration is of our reward, of course, a reward of grace, a reward of righteousness, but it's especially a celebration of God taking vengeance. Vengeance is God's, he says. I will repay. Don't ever take personal vengeance. This isn't our getting even. It's not even God's getting even. It's not like God has a score to settle, you know. It's not even like that at all. He's above that. He doesn't calculate as we calculate. Even now, he's vindicated in all that he does. He is seen as God. And when the wicked go wickedly crazy, 
He's seen as God because he's angry with the wicked every day. Look at this. The psalmist says, before the pots can peel the burning of the thorns as in on the fire, he shall take them away as with a whirlwind. This way, as in his living and burning wrath. The wrath of God is described as an animate thing. It's living and a hot thing. It's burning. As Jesus said, he who believes in the Son has eternal life. He who believes not the Son, the wrath of God abides on him. Right now, God's wrath is abiding upon the wicked who slander that little church in Comstock Park or that family that's taken a stance against this and that and the other thing in the family. There's all kinds of family rebellions where there should be family reunions. God is being glorified even now, and he shall be in the judgment day, beloved. And that's why we celebrate his vengeance. He will get all the glory. Not a human thing, a divine thing. Not our vengeance, God's. Not our personal vendettas and scores that we want to get even with that bully. I can name several in my past, you know, 60 years ago on the playground And I thought I'd get even back then, but now I see it doesn't matter. It's God's. God's being God. So, beloved, lament your sin. Love the difference God has made. Celebrate God. That's what this psalm is all about. It's a divine thing, a holy thing. Who are we that God would show mercy? Who are we? who boldly cry out against God, who silently slander God, who lack courage, who don't want to be consistent Christians and holy Christians because it's too hard. All this and all the excuses we give. Grace has made the difference, beloved. Believe that and celebrate that. Amen.